What's going on, everybody? This is the Passive Wealth Strategies Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Jeff Love. Jeff is an attorney, and today we're talking about some super important legal issues that you might not know about. Important legal issues, best practices, things that you need to know if you're investing in real estate or starting your own company. We're talking about the five W's of managing your company, starting your company, starting your LLC, and what you need to do to maintain that uh, corporation, the corporate formalities. I learned a lot from that. We're also gonna talk about important considerations for negotiating a purchase and sale agreement. I learned a lot uh, recording this interview with Jeff and I learned a lot going back and listening as well. I find that repetition of these interviews has benefited me greatly. Even though I'm there asking the questions I wanna know, I get to go back and listen again and I learn a lot. So there's a lot to be learned in this one. So get ready. For those of you who don't know, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor. I'm a real estate syndicator. I buy multifamily properties with passive investors and split the return. Love talking about real estate investing, making a return, buying cash flowing properties, and uh, giving people a place to live. Thank you for tuning in once again. Here we go with Jeff Love. Jeff, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to, pleasure to be here. Great to talk with you here in the middle of the coronavirus quarantine. Uh, for those out there who do not know who you are, could you tell us about your background and, and what you do? Sure. I am a transactional real estate attorney. So we focus residential and commercial deals all the way from acquisition, buying the property, due diligence, potentially syndicating a deal, financing deals, um, environmental issues, and then kind of disposition. So the whole essentially life cycle of a real estate project, oftentimes referred to as a dirt lawyer. It's no, it's not Hollywood <laughs> dirt. It's not gossip. Just the fact that we, we do real estate. We do things that deal with dirt. Um, part of a firm called Gibbs Gidden, Logar Turner, Senate in Whitbroat. It's a mouthful, but we're a Los Angeles-based regional law firm with uh, four offices, about 32 attorneys that practice primarily in real estate and construction. Cool, cool. And you're not the uh, the dirt lawyer in the Better Call Saul, Saul Goodman sense of, no. Bad no, guy. I, you know, it'd probably be a little, you know, times a little little more interesting with certain things not that real estate's not but but no i i leave i leave i leave Saul to his uh to his fun in uh in, in albuquerque right? so. all right good good so uh today uh, you know i wanted to talk about incorporating a real estate business and and things that we need to know and and you have a very interesting uh structure to talk about that the five w's of incorporating your real estate business. So, you know, let's get into that. I need to know these W's. You got the five W's, the, the, the who, what, when, where, and why. So we'll go through them quick because I could talk for, talk for a couple hours about it. I will bore all of, all of your listeners who, anyone that's investing in real estate wants the liability protection beyond what insurance offers. You're going to invest in real estate incorporate with whatever that edit is going to be. Uh, the why is really simple. Liability protection. You may have a multifamily building. You may have tenants. They might have a party. Someone slips and falls. God forbid someone falls off a balcony. There's you know, terrible tragedy. Your insurance is only a million dollar per occurrence and they get a judgment for 5 million. 
there goes there goes your equity in your project there goes your investors returns that entity has a, it's there for a reason it protects your individual assets you want to run your real estate investment portfolio like a business and you're protecting your other business your other family assets um, a lot of other benefits as well but you know liability is going to be the most you know probably the most advantageous reason to incorporate you've also got potential tax advantages um, you know it'll make you, you know, you're presenting yourself potentially in a more professional way to vendors, to tenants. I'm not, you know, John Smith creating this syndication deal, but we're Smith properties. A little bit less important to someone, but it really does make a difference the way you kind of present yourself, especially if you're a sponsor looking for investors. Um, we've done who, we've done why, when. You really want to incorporate before you start signing binding contracts. If you sign a purchase agreement to purchase real estate, your name is now on that contract. Whether you assign it later on, you still have personal liability. So to the extent you're starting signing deals, you know, even if you haven't closed yet, you're potentially opening yourself up to risk. So it, you, know, you don't want to incorporate you know, six months before you're even signing it. You may be, you know, your deal may face through, fall through, you may not need that entity, but really before you start signing on that dotted line, that's your key to say, let me explore incorporating my business. Let me think this project through so I can protect myself and make sure that maybe my other real estate deals or my, or my house, my cars, my bank accounts, those are protected from this, this new venture I'm going to enter into. Um, kind of the, 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 the biggest one is kind of what and where, and those are kind of, that's the meat of incorporating your business. You probably hear, you know, Delaware a lot. You may hear Nevada. You may hear Wyoming. I, sh I should incorporate in the state that I'm in. It really depends on the circumstances. The states like Wyoming and Delaware, they have, in Nevada as well, they have really established corporate law, especially Delaware. So that's why there are more businesses incorporated in Delaware than any other state. And it's for a reason. They're, they're business friendly. Nevada's benefit is really the ability to remain anonymous. Here in California, you actually have to disclose who's the manager of this entity so people can see it. In Nevada and other places, it gives you a little bit leg up if you wanted to remain anonymous. Um, but really, the key for most new real estate investors or those even experienced investors incorporating for the first time is, is really money. So you want to think about how much this is going to cost me. And for example, let's say that we are going to buy a four unit multifamily property in California. And I really like Delaware, but if I incorporate my business in Delaware, I still need to qualify to do business in California. And what that means is I need to register in California as well because they want their share of tax revenue. Of course. Of course. But problem is now, now I'm paying Delaware and I'm paying California. So did it really give me that much benefit to, to form in Delaware, certain businesses maybe, but for most real estate investors, you know, unless there's a reason not to, it most often makes sense to incorporate in the business where either you're operating or where the property is located, because then you're not paying not just the you know the taxes, but the administrative burden of making sure that you've got documents and you're filing, you do all your filings in California, you're doing your filings in Delaware. So we really recommend you kind of focus on those two states, um, either where, 
where the property is or where you're located. Um, now that the, the biggest issue is, is, is what? So you've got a number of different entities. You've got your sole proprietorship, which is if Taylor or Jeff wanted to just start up buy buy a real estate business and we're, we're, we're a business, you know, most independent contractors may be operating a sole proprietorship downfall. There is there's, there's no liability protection. Um, you have partnerships, both general and limited general partnership would be if we entered into business together rather than just one of us. Um, but the problem there again is no liability protection. So you don't get the full benefit of incorporating your business unless you're getting that liability protection. So the ones most real estate businesses focus on are limited partnerships, uh, potentially as corporations, though there's some significant tax advantage there, or LLCs. Um, your LLC is kind of a new, I say new, it's been around for about you know, 30, 30 years, but in terms of entities, it's one of the newer ones, and that takes the benefit of, of kind of the corporation and the limited partnership because both a limited partnership and an LLC they have what's called through pass through taxation versus a, versus a corporation. So you're not paying uncle Sam twice. You're not, the business is paying tax and then you're paying tax on your dividends that any, any income flows through to your investors and you're paying tax once. So LLC limited partnerships are typically the ones to focus on. They each have their kind of pros and cons limited partnership for one is you need a general partner. General partner has unlimited liability so either you have unlimited liability or you're creating another entity like an S corp or a corporation or an LLC to act as that general partner. So it's got a little bit, you know, more complexity. Um, some people are, you know, a lot of your big funds are limited partnerships, but most real estate investments, especially you know, when you're starting out, if you want to incorporate your business, I would explore looking at an LLC because it, it, it's very flexible. If you've got investors looking at kind of waterfalls or, or special promotes, it allows you to do that. The ownership interest doesn't necessarily have to correlate to profit distributions. So it's just a flexible entity and it, it allows you to run your real estate investments like a business. It gives you liability protection. And in the long-term scheme of things, the protection that it offers really does outweigh the cost that it's going to form, that it's going to cost you to actually create it. So you, uh, you said something a, a bit ago about sole proprietorship not offering liability protection. And I wanted to make sure I understood that and also that in light of single member LLCs and what is the you know differentiator there because we might have a few single member LLC owners out there listening and, and I'm one of those. So I'd like to understand the, the difference uh, between those two. Of course. So... Your individual proprietorship, say, Jeff Love, I, I want to go and create a Jeff's taco shop. We'll jump out of real estate for a minute and say, sure. I get a DBA. I'm operating as that business. I can open a bank account. I'm holding myself out to the public as Jeff's taco shop, but I don't, I don't have an entity. I haven't created anything. So if someone uh, gets food poisoning, gets super sick, and they decide, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sue Jeff because he made me bad tacos. He sues me, all of my assets are at risk, not just my taco shop. Your single member LLC, it doesn't matter how many members you have, whether it's one, two, 10, or 100, you still have that liability protection. With a single member, the difference there is you're really 
why, why people call it single member versus you know multi-member is you don't have to deal with partners so you're not getting k1s you're not getting uh you're not filing a partnership return everything is just flowing through to your personal tax return mm. uh, and that that's the main difference between those and it's not just a liability you when you're exploring your entity you really want to take in kind of the full picture because in certain circumstances if you're buying you know maybe a two to four unit property the lender you're exploring with may not allow you to take title in that entity, or you may be able to get a much, much better rate if you take title as an individual. So for example, when I bought a, a quad, um, you know, as an investment a few years ago, I had to take it in my family trust because the rate was so much better. And eventually I was able to move it over into an LLC. But the risk there was I was trading my lower rate for liability for mm -hmm. that interim period, which, you know, weighing all the risks in return, I thought I was able to manage with insurance, but you do want to weigh kind of weigh everything and look at that big picture when you're deciding what I could incorporate as and, and why. So I, I'd like to talk about, um, you mentioned, well, actually, no, you didn't. So I'd like to talk about piercing the corporate veil and so, so there's this thing out there where people think, well, you start your LLC and then you, say, um, I don't know, Jeff's Taco Shop LLC, and I'm going to go, well, wholesale properties in the taco shop, but I'm just going to have this LLC and it's just going to protect me from any liability and I'm good to go. Um, where, you know, maybe I'd like to talk about like best practices around maintaining that corporate veil and, and some of the bigger mistakes that you see people making. Um, we don't need to stick with real estate, but you know, those of us that are not lawyers that need to know these important lessons on maintaining our corporation and not making those big mistakes. Uh, what do you see people, you know, doing screwing up their LLCs these days? That is a, it's, that's a terrific, terrific point, especially when we're talking about, especially it's true. I mean, especially when we're talking about a single member LLC and it's just me, it's, you know, I don't got, I don't have partners. So I can kind of, I kind of maybe look at that LLC as, as a piggy bank or maybe move money in and move money out and piercing the corporate bill. It, it is, it's, it is a saying, you know, mostly lawyers like to use because we think it sounds cool. Pierce, yeah. piercing the corporate veil. But what it, what it essentially means is when you create a company, whether it's an LLC or a corporation, it's a separate entity. You are, you as an individual, are different than that corporation. It has a separate legal existence. So you are, you are separate and apart. So what you don't want to do is you don't want to start commingling assets. So we'll stick with Jeff's taco shop because I think it sounds cool and it's kind of making me hungry, but tacos, <laughs> I don't, I, I can't take the business, you know, my money that I'm making from Jeff's taco shop and put it into my bank account and maybe income that I make as a lawyer and then take my income from a lawyer and put it into Jeff's taco shop and you know, take Jeff's taco shop and use that money to go buy groceries at the grocery store for myself personally. I'm commingling the money between the two. I need to keep Jeff's taco shop as Jeff's taco shop and essentially bring in when I distribute money to myself, that's fine. But I, I need to, any money I'm spending in that entity needs to be for that entity. I can't mix the money back and forth because if you do, and you end up getting sued by a disgruntled investor or a disgruntled customer, they can go and try to pierce that veil. And what that means is they're going to go into court and say, this entity is not a real entity. It's really just Jeff, you know, 
operating a business as himself. He hasn't respected the corporate formalities. He hasn't treated it as a separate entity. So we're going to disregard that. And we're going to disregard the liability protection that it offers. And we're going to be able to go after him personally. So that's a, it's a great point, especially if you are a single member LLC, you need to treat that LLC as a separate company and make sure that you keep your assets, especially bank accounts, separate um, from, the, from the two different ones. Interesting. So you, you said something there that, that really uh, struck me that I think we should try to remember is corporate formalities. And you know, for the busy professionals out there, you know, we might know your know, corporate formalities from having a, a job, you know, you know what that's like, but from having a, a real estate investing business that you maybe run out of your house, you don't have a separate office, like, and, and knowing what, um, say counts as commingling, uh, assets and commingling monies. I think it's maybe hard to gauge the, the risk of, you know, what, what's your, what is working on your business in your home office imply? Are you generally safe there? Or, you know, if we're not taking money out of the, the bank account to go buy groceries for home and we're respecting those, like where are some of those gray areas falling for us in terms of uh, respecting the corporate formalities? When you're in the gray, it's, it's not as bad. So, you know, you can work on your LLC. You might be doing records from your home. That, that's not a problem. What, what they're really getting at, you know, courts when they're talking about piercing the corporate bail is you're taking money directly out of your LLC and you're using that money for personal expenses. Mm. You, maybe, you have, maybe you have one bank account and you're, you're using that bank account for your, your real estate project. And then you're taking that and you're doing home renovation and then you're using it to go on a trip. Well, how do we know what money really belongs to the corporation and what money belongs to you? Because if I'm a plaintiff and I'm, I'm suing you, I don't know what belongs to the corporation and what doesn't. So I'd say the number one thing in keeping it separate is really money. You know, create, an, create a bank account for your LLC or your company, and that bank account should be used to pay expenses for the company. When there's profit, you move it over to your personal bank account and you know, if the, if the company needs additional money and there's, you know, you need to raise capital, you can always put money in, but you want to document that. And that would be an additional capital contribution to the company. Obviously let your kind of accountant know, but you do, you want to treat it like it's a separate company. Like it's not you as an individual. It is a separate company. It has its own books and records. Maybe you're tracking your profit or loss, whether it's an Excel spreadsheet or hire a QuickBooks, however you're doing it. It's just it's really maintaining those separate records, separate bank accounts, and treat it like it is a separate company from you as an individual. Mm, okay. And before you um, take those funds to to go on a vacation or something, maybe uh, treat it as a distribution and talk to your account about how to properly document that, you know, because we ultimately we form these companies because we want to make money. We need to get that. We need them to make money and we need to get that money out so we can use it. So we need to know the right way to do that. Exactly. And you've said it, you know, you'd make yourself a distribution, you document it. There's a, there's a check going to your bank account and it goes into the kind of the, offered a loss of the company so you can see it and you can track it. So if there ever was a problem, you think, no, this was a distribution um, of profit that I was taking for myself because I wanted to go to Tahiti for a week and my business is <laughs> successful. I'm a great real estate investor and 
listening to the right podcast and, you know, I know what I'm doing and I'm, I'm getting that profit. Nice. Nice. So, uh, there's another thing that, uh, you brought up that I really wanted to, I really wanted to learn about, honestly, you know, you, uh, you mentioned you, you'd want to talk about this, the top 10 issues syndicators need to focus on when negotiating a PSA. And I think especially right now during the, the coronavirus uh, pandemic, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are scrambling with their, their PSAs to see, do I have an out? I actually noticed, I don't know whether you, you know, that, know this or not. I looked up on Google Trends, uh, force majeure. I think I looked that up on Friday. It is at all time highs right now by an oh, yeah. enormous margin. Oh yeah, that is. And I've gotten, I can't tell you how many calls with that the last week. <laughs> and it, 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 it depends on how that provision's written because a lot of times with tenants, it doesn't exclude the payment of rent. And a lot of times it's, it's written more for government shutdowns or uh, casualty events like an earthquake, a, a fire, or a tornado. Mm. It doesn't always include uh, a pandemic, which is what we're going through now. So it doesn't exclude that, you know, but it's something to consider. Um, We'll do it from, you can talk that the top 10 really from buyer or seller's side, they want to be you know, a little bit different, but sometimes you hit the same issues from really from a buyer's perspective, negotiating a purchase agreement, whether it's, you know, you're buying a single family home, you're buying a commercial warehouse, you're buying a hundred million, hundred unit multifamily property. The number one thing in, well, it might be not hundred percent legal in nature. Something to watch out for is, Read the agreement. You may have your lawyer do it, but you, you really want to kind of understand what you're getting into, especially if you, especially if you're buying, you know, let's call it, we'll call it, we're going to buy a, a duplex as an investment as, you know, we're starting on investing. I found a great duplex in California. For example, we still use a form by the California association of realtors, same form you use to buy a single family house. And it's something that's prepared by brokers, really for brokers, since they can't prepare legal documents. And it doesn't always include the things you'd want, like an estoppel certificate. And you may not know what you're missing or know that, you know, there's something that I'd like to have. So read the agreement, make sure that you understand it. And if you don't, whoever your advisor is, whether you're using just a broker or an attorney, have them explain the provisions that you don't understand. Hmm. From, from there, I mean, Second issue is probably look at the representations and warranties when you're buying a property. Um, a lot of times it's glossed over and it's never important until there's an issue. But when you're doing due diligence, you may have 10 days, you may have 30 days, 60 days, but there are things that are that will not come up in that 60 day, even 60 day time period that you may discover six months or a year later. So your representations and warranties, that's how you protect yourself against against a seller and maybe it's maybe i'm buying a, again a duplex and next door is a gas station and there's underground um there's underground contamin water contamination that's flowing underneath my property and i wasn't able to to learn about that until later on maybe in my purchase agreement because of that's a specific concern i'm asking the seller for you know to really represent that he has no knowledge of hazardous materials or any environmental issues with the property um, Without those representations, I've got no recourse against the seller because most most commercial deals, you know, five units and above, the seller is going to disclaim, you know, all conditions with respect to the property and say, 
I'm only liable for my representations. You're doing your own due diligence. Mm -hmm. So without those representations, I have no recourse. Um, another issue kind of related to representations and warranties is how long do they last? A, a lot of agreements, they, they may last, they may merge with the deed at closing. And once you close, the representation goes away. Uh. An, a, another deal, it may be for three years or somewhere in between. And every, every document, especially form documents, they're different. And just because someone presents you with what looks like a pre-printed form doesn't mean it's not negotiable. If I'm the buyer and it says three years, I'm, I'm, I'm excited beyond belief and I'm going to leave it. But if I'm the seller, I'm crossing that thing out and I'm going to write, you know, I'm going to write three months. That's it. You got three months to figure it out or I'm off the hook because as a, if I'm a seller, I want to be able to, I want to be able to kind of pick up and, uh, and walk away. When I'm done with the property, I'm, I'm done. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you want know, that liability hanging over your head. Exactly. I do not want that liability. When I sell it, I want to be done. Um, but as the buyer, I want to be able to get in there and kind of get my feet wet and see if there's anything I missed. Um, again, representations and warranties, you know, one issue, but kind of m many issues within that. The, the next one I look for, especially, especially your bigger deals. You know, if you're talking, you're going to buy a 10 unit property or a commercial warehouse an industrial building, has a seller put in, and a lot of times a seller is going to prepare the purchase agreement. So have they put in some type of cap on their liability? A lot of times you may see a 1% or 2% cap. And maybe I'm talking about a, a, a $10 million deal and a 1% cap on a $10 million deal. How much is that going to get me? If I'm really damaged, that doesn't offer me much protection. So you really want to get someone experienced in your market and see, is that 1% reasonable or should that really be three or 5%? So I understand really what's my recourse against the seller. If this goes with this goes poorly and really how, how long do I have to go after him and how much can I go after him for? Um, so those are, say those are kind of the, the, the one, two, three issues with reps, reps and warranties. Another issue you probably want to look out for, uh, look at your estoppel certificates and you make sure you're able to get one. That's a really important item that's often overlooked, especially with new real estate investors. What, what an estoppel certificate is, is it's you're asking the tenant, whether it's a, a residential unit or a, a retail space, to honor and tell you what's in their lease. So it may say, I'm paying this much in rent, there's no default. And when they sign that certificate, they can't deny what's in that certificate later. Hence the word estoppel. Mm. They're, estop they're stopped from denying that. So they can't come to you in six months and say, hold on buyer. I had a deal with your seller and he said I could live here for five years and only pay a hundred dollars a month. Without that estoppel certificate, you can fight the tenant and say no, but now you're incurring litigation costs. And if the seller did make an agreement and you didn't, see that side agreement if it's a piece of paper that wasn't disclosed maybe you're already past your deadline with the seller and you could be stuck if you've got that establishment certificate you hold that up and you wave that to buyer and say no 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 you you said that right here and there goes that argument um even if you were unable to get one from the tenant a lot of times you can get it from the seller as well and they'll sign an establishment certificate which is another way to keep them on the hook 
oftentimes it, it may not be as good as the tenant because a seller, especially if it's a LLC, as so many people are creating and they've distributed all that money from that LLC, what's left over? You may have a shell of an entity um, without many assets to kind of go after. Um, those are, I think we've covered five that, you know, those are probably the, those are probably the, the biggest ones that I'd kind of be worried about for you know, your kind of one of the mill purchase agreement, you know, other things you want to pay attention to kind of maybe on a smaller scale, you want to maybe, maybe look at the notice provision, make sure, because it's really important when you're sending notices, especially if it's waiving contingencies, you want to make sure you're sending it the right way and you understand how you're sending it. So that's one, you may not think it's negotiated, but some, it often does, especially with our you know, day and age when we're talking about technology. When I'm sending an email, does that count as notice? Does it count today or does it count tomorrow? When, when, and, how, when and how does that work? Um, another issue that may come up from time to time is, is the ability as for a buyer to assign the agreement. If I'm entering mm -hmm. into as myself and I create my LLC later, I want to make sure that I'm able to sell it to that LLC and especially if I've got a great deal and I don't want to have to drop out of the property, but I don't want it to affect my financing. I want to be able to have that flexibility to essentially move this purchase agreement uh, where I can. Um, other issues, you know, uh, heavily negotiated. Um, you want to look at obviously your due diligence time period is, is very critical. And to the extent you think you may need more time, you kind of want to weigh the risks. You know, you don't want to be, you know, you don't want to be annoying and hard to deal with with your seller. <laughs> but at the same time, you you do want to protect yourself when you're negotiating it because what I see a lot as an attorney is is buyer. You know, let me just sign the deal. I can always back out in you know in a month if I don't like it. But what happens is buyer goes out and they may they may get a phase one and do environmental testing. They may underwrite it. They may form an entity. They may start shopping it to their investors and all of a sudden they need two more weeks for financing. They go to the seller and the seller says, no, well, what do I do? I can't close, but if I back out, I lose all my money. I'm kind of between a rock and a hard place where yeah. if I had tried to negotiate a little bit more upfront, I might be able to soften that and maybe, maybe work an extension for a little bit of a fee, but something to protect myself because on your bigger deals, your due diligence costs are going to increase, especially if you have, you know, you have a broker, maybe you have an accountant looking at something, you've got other team members, maybe you have, you know, hope, hopefully you have an attorney looking at it. Uh, those, those costs kind of do go up in that due diligence period. Um, those, I think those are the major issues to consider. You know, every deal is different. But if you kind of focus on, on those kind of top 10 issues, you know, that will get you, you know, leagues ahead of where you would otherwise. And you'll kind of understand the deal. You understand the timing and know that I've got X amount of days to kind of go out and raise money. If that's what I'm doing, X amount of days to go talk to my lender, to review stop certificates, to review due diligence. So I understand the process of the purchase and I'm able to have kind of a smooth transaction, um, which are rare. You know, smooth transaction, you know, that's yes. kind of the, the, the golden egg that we're looking for, but they do make, they do make it easier if you're able to kind of work those things out up front and kind of take the bird's eye view approach um, when negotiating a purchase and sale agreement. Nice. I, you know, I, it's funny you, you bring that up. Uh, the recent deal I'm, I'm involved in, we got a, 
free extension because our financing contingency required the seller to provide documentation to our lender by a certain date. They missed that date. So we got 30 days where normally yeah, you can pay for an extension and that'll be in the contract as well. But in a commercial real estate deal, that extension could cost you $50,000. Now it's not a cost, it's a deposit, but it's still 50 grand out of your pocket that you'd really rather hang on to. Right. Um, so it can be in your favor to really negotiate that well as well, because delays on the seller side can lead to extensions that can lead to your benefit because interest rates severely came down during those 30 days as well. So, you know, that ended up working out well. So kudos to the lawyer on that one, but these things can be very beneficial. So right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Jeff, I've got three questions. I ask every guest at the end of the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? I'd say it's that first real estate property. I've, I've helped investors for so long, uh, kind of investing in their own deals, and I was never able to do it. And the first kind of four-unit apartment building I bought was scary beyond belief, <laughs> not knowing that I knew all the legal side, but the business side and actually just jumping in and doing that first one no question that that's the first one. The first deal is always the hardest, but once you look back, you, you will never regret it. If you, you know, just, just make sure you're, you're, you're being conservative in, you know, in your approach, but buying that first deal, you never regret it. Yeah. If your good deals, the first one, it'll be your best investment you ever made. Not even necessarily from the numbers on the other side of that, we have the worst investment you ever made. What is the worst investment you ever made? Oh, that, that one, that one's a, that one's a tougher one. The worst investment I ever made, uh, was probably the first car I bought and I, and not, <laughs> not, not only overpaid for it, but I just thought that Mustang was the coolest thing ever. And all it did was, was, was leak oil and break down from one thing after another. And it taught me a good lesson though, is, is <laughs> Listen to your dad when he tells you, you know, not to do it because sometimes our parents have, uh, have experience with these things and it uh, could have saved me a lot of heartache and, uh, and money too. Wow. Wow. Nice. My favorite question at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? Have, yeah, I'd say it's two parts know what you don't know and have the team around you to be able to help you not even in just the real estate business but as a lawyer no lawyer can know everything about every aspect of the law even real estate so having you know partners around where you can bounce off a question or investing in a real estate deal where i've got a good broker that knows the area i've got a good accountant that can help me you know make sure i'm doing anything every correctly or maybe cost segregating on a building and saving money in my pocket, a good attorney that, that, that can protect me. And I never know his value until the end because the things never went wrong. Uh, a good insurance broker, you know, you can't understate insurance because it, it's a, it's a cost and you won't appreciate it until you need it. And then once you have it <laughs> and you had that good broker saying, wow, they're going to cover me for this, for this. And I just pay this deductible. I've seen it too many times. It's just having that team in place 
is is going to put you you know in a, in a great position and you're able to rely on these people with their own expertise so you can focus best on what you do nice i like that i like that well thank you for everything today a lot of a lot of great lessons i'm I go back and listen to all the interviews and I'm really going to enjoy this one because there's a lot of information to go back and digest. And I always catch things that I didn't catch the first time around, even though I'm here for the discussion, I always catch stuff and I know I'm going to learn more going back and listening to this one more time. So I'm looking forward to that. Thank you for everything today. If folks want to learn more about you, more about your business, where can they get in touch with you? The first place I'd go is check out our website. It's www.gibbsgiddon.com. My email is jlove at gibbsgiddon.com. Um, or you can give me a call as well. Always happy to talk to, to real estate investors. Nice, nice. Well, once again, I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking some time today. I hope you stay safe and healthy there in the LA area during the uh, coronavirus pandemic. And to everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated. It helps other people learn about the show, and it helps me out, so I appreciate it. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the fold. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you are staying safe and healthy, and your family is all doing well here during this uh, coronavirus pandemic, and uh, we're all going to come out on the other side, hopefully better, smarter, and healthier. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. We'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.